listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Good morning. I'm wonderful. Is it negative 50? <laughs> no, it is beautiful. 12 degrees and sunny. <laughs> so the tracks aren't on fire on the L? No. Okay, so what I want to talk about today is about something you wrote, which you so elegantly titled Stupid Shenanigans Marketing Should Not Do. (laughs) That's when I (laughs) named it. (laughs) Well, you didn't actually name it that. You named it something kind of like that. Uh, There was a swear word in there. But since we're trying to keep a PG rating here, tell us actually why you named it what you did, SH something else, and maybe why you wrote it. Maybe actually that's the the better question, really. I think I had a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) The train train tracks were on fire. (laughs) No, I think this was, you know, 20 plus years of frustration. Actually, there was a catalyst. Okay. I had met with a CMO and the CMO was starting a new role. And she outlined what she was planning to do in her first 90 days and then from there. And as she detailed it, I was just like, no, don't, don't, no, don't go. (laughs) Don't don't do any of these things. Don't don't do any (laughs) of that stuff. (laughs) So it inspired me to write a blog post on it. And the things in the blog post weren't, you know, everything that she described, but they were a lot of things that marketing just should not be doing because it wastes time and there's, there's no... ROI. And then I turned it into an infographic and it is the most popular infographic I have on my website. (laughs) Marketers look at it, they laugh, they get it, they print it out, they put it up in their cubicle. And it's a great conversation starter. And it gives a nomenclature for partners and and marketers to have a dialogue. Why shouldn't you do that? So that's why I created it. I should probably change the name, but no, I don't think you should. I don't think you should change the name at all. I love it, by the way. I, I I hadn't read it in a while. In fact, when we decided to talk about this today, I sort of dug it back out because I hadn't read it in a while. And I, yeah, I enjoy it. And what I enjoy about it is that you wrote from the heart and you wrote from a moment of frustration along those lines. And my sense is that there's a lot of marketers that have these moments as well. You know, when I can honestly say, I mean, we, we haven't done this in a long time, but we have designed holiday cards for clients. And I mean, complex, interactive experiences, personalized, multidimensional. I mean, just crazy amounts of resources put at this. And we haven't done that in at least eight or 10 years. But you know, that, that's on your list. That's why I obviously bring it up. But but yeah, I mean, just incredible waste of resources, months of time devoted to this eight second experience that's really meaningless to a client of, of no value. And in fact, it actually pushed me so far. We don't even send holiday cards anymore. We don't even do it. Not, we don't even buy them. We don't even send them. We don't even do it. I just said, then we're not doing that at all. So good for you. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad. I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it's just rude. <laughs> but. Well, did any of your clients ask where your Christmas card was? No. And, and I can't say we've seen any significant change in our client relationships. Oh my God, we didn't get a holiday card from Rattleback. Oh, oh my God, we shouldn't hire them anymore. So, so since there's 20 things on this list and this, and this podcast is supposed to be a 20 to 22 minute podcast, I took the liberty of grouping these into buckets. And what I'd like to do is just rattle off some of the stuff that, that I... I would argue is fairly obvious and then get into some of the stuff that's a little more nuanced. So I've got four buckets. So I'll, I'll share maybe my, my bucket one 
and obviously I would encourage you, you know, listeners to go to Jeff's website and download the, the infographic because the infographic has all 20 so you can reference it while you're listening. I put a group of, of the first stuff, which I call low value admin stuff, which is stuff I, I lumped in that though to this idea of making a presentation pretty, managing an office picnic or an HR event, getting client tickets, holiday cards, since we just talked about it. And that stuff to me is just sort of obvious. It's like, why is marketing even being asked to do these things in the first place? I would be inclined to sort of set those aside and say, well, let's not even talk about those. My group two, I have as you know, poignantly mark off a collection of one-off non-strategic activities. Now, these are things that marketing gets asked to do all the time. And on the surface, it seems perfectly fine, except that you know there's no tie to a, a broader business strategy. And I'll rattle these six off and maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about them. But you have, I think you, you say, do another brand study. Sponsor a charity event, brainstorm about a one-off marketing program. You actually use the phrase one-off. Brand a new product with one client project. So you know you've got you know one one data point, and now you're going to brand a whole new product around it. A one-time ad, and then and then I lumped in there producing a brochure. So let's talk about those for a few minutes. You know, let's talk about why those one-off activities are just bad ideas, and we could probably pick any one of them as an example and dig into it. What drives you nuts about those? Those one-off things. Why are they ridiculous? There's so much noise in the market and doing one-offs make partners feel good that they're doing something, but they simply have no ROI and they suck off people resources, financial resources, time resources. Oftentimes, I think they confuse the market more than educate it. So I just never allow one-off anything. And if a partner is really, really fired up about doing something, we'll turn it from a one-off into a multi-dimensional campaign of some kind. But I always try to take it another step to give it more legs. And that's to tie it back to firm-wide themes and positioning. And you have to begin with the end in mind, I think to some degree around those, you have to have a vision that allows you to tie it back up easily. You can't make this stuff up as it's going, but if you have a framework for the broader positioning, it's a lot easier to fit this stuff in, but you have to be thinking that way instead of just saying, yeah, we'll do that for you. Like an order taker would. For clarity, when we say a one-off program, are we saying that it's a it's a single channel tactic. Maybe it's you know they they want to do a. You also you could lump email blast in here as well. You have sent an email blast. Yeah. Are you saying it's tactically speaking they're only trying to go through one one channel, or are you saying they're trying to do maybe a little more? Maybe they've got an idea for a piece of thought leadership they want to produce that just doesn't really roll up to the broader firm positioning, and so it's sort of an outlier. What do we mean by a one off? Which of those two scenarios? Yeah, it could be. Either of those, but I think what you normally see in firms is, hey, let's have an event, let's do a seminar, let's do a webinar on this event because I need some quick leads because my pipeline's dried up. Okay. So let's just do this event and we'll see what happens. Well, I can tell you what's going to (laughs) happen. We're not going to get any leads. We're going to do a lot of resources. But I think the one-offs in partners' mind think that they think that one-offs break through the noise and actually produce results, and they just don't. It's the exception that does. In order to be effective at, at driving leads and 
building pipeline, you just have to keep pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding. And one-offs just do not do that. It's a great point in the sense that we all have this belief that we've got this big idea or we've got this big research study or we've got this big thing that we want to release to the marketplace. And it's going to be this just watershed moment where we hit the market and it just explodes. And usually it's a big missed opportunity because you got to keep putting more different activities around that idea, around that research or whatever it is, and let the marketplace over time, the clients you want to reach, I like to say, form a fuzzy perception of what it is that you're trying to say and and be known for. And when they actually do raise their hand and start the conversation, usually you're shocked at how little they've really internalized of, of whatever it is you want them to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, what's that statistic they say, you know, I think CEOs need to repeat themselves 15 times, seven times, some st- statistic like that internally to get their, their their teams to understand what they're trying to say. So, you know, the marketplace is, is worse than that, right? Yes. All right. So I, I have a third bucket that actually, actually only has one thing in it. <laughs> so I guess it's not really a bucket, but I, I just sort of call it activities you should own. And, and what is in it is just you have this notion of posting to your to your social media accounts, your personal social media account. Let's talk about that because that's an interesting one. Why is that a flawed thing for a partner to ask of the marketing team? I would group a couple of things in into this category that partners should own. Social media, I would refer to it as social selling, is about engagement, interaction, uh, being attuned to what's going on there, not just posting to you know, either a company profile or a personal profile. So to me, it just shows a complete misunderstanding of the channel and what it takes to be successful. And it falls into that one off again, because it's just not, it's going to take a lot of resources, but it's not going to produce much ROI. If you were going to do social, then you, you have to jump in social on your own and educate yourself and make a commitment to doing it. So really, they should be looking to the marketing function for guidance on how to do that, not to do the activities for them. Yeah. And the same I would hold for the update or clean up your CRM data. If you're managing relationships, then your CRM data should be impeccable. You should have the sales discipline to manage you know, contact information and where people are in their careers and what they're doing and what their roles and responsibilities are. A lot of information, company records and stuff like that can be automated. But the contact information that really adds value is the personal notes, the tasks, the follow-ups, things associated with it. And having emails in there, for example, I mean, it's just absolutely critical for your own personal communication. And if if a partner's so inept that they can't manage email contacts and they have to delegate that to marketing who has no or a very limited relationship, again, it's a waste of time and it's a abdication of real relationship building responsibility. I would throw make your presentation pretty into that and something you should own as a partner. Sure, marketing can clean it up, maintain brands, and bring graphics that tell complex stories quickly and easily to life. But 
if you're just dumping your speaker notes into a presentation and hoping marketing is going to make that better, it's just, it's a ridiculous waste of time. Partners should be investing the time in being incredibly effective at delivering presentations, whether that's in introductory meetings or proposals or client update meetings. And they probably shouldn't even be using PowerPoint hardly at all anyway, but those are things that they should just own as part of relationship and effective selling in my mind. What's interesting to me and what you just said is that the, man, I, I think about all the conversations I've had with partners and business development managers and anybody that has any selling responsibility in most firms. And it is the extreme minority that apply process and rigor to their CRM data. I carried that flag for a little while. I tried to convince you know the marketplace and clients that this was an important thing. And most of them just ignored me. And even, even pretty successful sales consultants I know ignored me. And I finally just decided, well, that's not my battle to fight, so I'm going to move on. But it shocks me because as someone that sits at the apex of marketing and business development in our business, I don't know how you function successfully without that type of discipline. I don't think you do. Your ability to command and manage. No, those are not the right words. Those are I think maybe it's like guiding. Yeah. Facilitating, guiding yes. a productive conversation that uncovers issues and needs and makes people self-disclose and feel good and build relationship with you while speaking with authority. But, you know, humbly, that takes a lot of practice. And it doesn't come through when you're just sliding through 80 slides that all are formatted with the same fonts and colors. It just doesn't work that way. So I I would say 90% of partners tend to send the presentation to marketing, make it pretty. And that's where their thought is instead of how they're going to facilitate and guide people in a dialogue, not get through each of these slides in the amount of time allotted. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Thinking back, this is a long time ago. I hired a a researcher to help us do some brand research, actually kind of funny, in your list of things not to do. To do a brand study for one of our clients, this was, boy, 15 years ago. And I remember she brings back this deck. It's like 68 slides long. And I looked at it. I was like, this is just not going to fly. Like going into the CEO of this company and you're going to present him 56 slides of data. He's going to tune out and lose all interest. And she said, oh, I, I, I do this all the time. You know, don't worry about it. I, I, will, I, will, I will move through it quickly. <laughs> it all the time. I'm like, okay. I kind of let her fail because I knew this was going to fail. I mean, she was a seasoned researcher, came from a highly respected firm. And she goes in, delivers all these, you know, her 74 slides or whatever the number was. Gets to the end and the CEO looks her square in the face. He's like, well, that was a lot of data, but where's the insight? And I mean, just <laughs> laid it out there. And of course, I was fully prepared. I had my notes. I said, here's what I think the four insights are, Phil. And uh, he said, looked at me and said, thank you. And so then I, we left. And I, of course, I never hired her again. I'm like, this is the biggest waste of resources I've ever seen. I mean, I could have done a better brand study by walking around their, you know, to their offices and just talking to people. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, um, 
I digress. I also think your presentation comment is interesting in the sense just of, I also remember an instance where I, I had a client speak in an event and I went to the event and afterwards I, you know, politely said, Hey, you did a really nice job. I, I said, did you rehearse this? And he said, well, no, I, I'm just a natural speaker. I just, I just go up and deliver. And of course I was really sort of being kind because he really didn't do a very good job, um, <laughs> but I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And to me, the biggest compliment, I mean, at our event this last fall, you know, I, I gave my talk and a, and, a, and a guy came up to me and said, Jason, that was an, an unbelievable talk. And he's like, and it was your pacing that was incredible. He's like, the amount of information you put into this talk and brought to light for us, yet you moved at a pace that was perfect. It was never too fast. It was never too slow. It's like you had this thing so well paced for people to internalize what you were saying. It was unbelievable. And that, that, that to me is the biggest compliment I could get as a speaker because I, I'm not a... I'm not going to emotional. So like, I'm not going to, you know, be the guy that gets you all gung ho and fired up or whatever, but for someone to say that you get the pacing, right. And to me, that just comes with practice. You have to really work at it. You have to really think through what you want to say. And you can't, like you said, just take your speaker notes on a, on an outline and hand them over to some marketing guy to, to ram into a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. And ideally, like you said, you know, you're speaking without, without a deck at all. All right, let's get to the last group before we run out of time. And the last group is stuff that I kind of argue could be worth doing, but just needs a little bit of a change of focus. And I'll pick out a few in here that you you put in here that I, I you sort of personally, you specifically set up for this reason. Now let's just pick out one that I particularly like. Actually, I like, there's two I like the most and I'll pick these out. And there's one where you said, build your personal brand and one that says, pursuing growth for your firm or practice without a coherent, realistic business strategy. I like both of those as examples of what I'm saying, only in the sense that I would argue both of those things are, are, are just really interesting things that clearly marketing should be helping you do, but the lens in which they're presented here is, is wrong. And I would totally agree with you. So yes, to me, you know, let's, let's dive on the personal brand side. Cause I actually think that that is absolutely something that you should be turning to for marketing for assistance on in the right way. But tell me why, what's wrong with it, I guess. Maybe tell me what's flawed with, with that ask. How about if you explain your bent on it first, and then I'll explain, because how we define personal brands may be, be different. different. So yeah, no, go, ahead jump in. go ahead and jump in. Okay. So how many times have you been told in your life that a professional services firm is a highly personal business, meaning that you know people hire from people they like? And all that kind of person-to-person interactions that are the foundation of of buying and selling. So, and yet, then how frequently do you find firms where the the people, the people that actually are the experts or the you know the subject matter experts, are almost pushed behind the scenes a little bit? They're, they're not really enabled to to sort of step up and 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 be a, and have a voice in a compelling way. So, my frame of reference on this is that. Yes, I, I understand the risks associated with elevating a subject matter expert into a place of visibility for the firm, but I still think it's a critical thing and, a, and, a, and it's something that firms should do. If they're looking for marketing to help raise their visibility, you know, be it through giving them advice on how to build their reputation inside of LinkedIn or raise their visibility through identifying speaking opportunities, you know, those types of things, because they've got a compelling point of view and they're looking for marketing to help shape and define that point of view. That is all positive stuff and all stuff that marketing should selectively be doing. They can't do that for every person, I'm sure, but they should absolutely be doing that in my experience. Can't disagree with any of that. So let me nuance it as I often do. 
I wrote a piece a while ago on mismanaging personal brands. And the the basis of the, the piece was that there are two types of firms. There's team firms and group firms. And this builds on some of Patrick Lencioni's thinking about dysfunctional teams. Oftentimes, I find people that are obsessed with personal brands and, you know, we, we, there, we went through this phase where people talked about my personal brand. Yeah. <laughs> I find are often narcissistic, self-serving, and managing a fiefdom for their own gain. And they're not concerned about the broader firm. Team firms are primarily concerned about the overarching brand of their firm and their personal brand is a contribution to building up the firm's brand. And they don't actively manage a personal brand. Instead, they live with integrity. They act as leaders. They build trust. They are developing and sharing expertise with everyone around them whether that is technical expertise, business expertise, or just personal, spiritual experience and and expertise. It's not something that has to be thought about and managed as a brand. It's who they are. And its contribution is to something bigger than themselves. So when I have somebody come to me and say, I want to build my personal brand, it's a red flag for me. Mm-hmm. It could be a good thing. It could not be a good thing. If somebody comes in and says to me the way you just described that, I want to elevate the visibility of my thinking around such and such a subject. And the reason they want to do that is to drive growth and serve clients and contribute to the firm. And yeah. that visibility around that expertise reinforces the firm. I have no trouble doing that. And it goes back to the earlier conversation about what's one-off and what's really integrated into uh, smarter strategic investments in, in growing the firm. So to me, personal brand is just a red flag term for something that can have really negative percussions and suck life away from the firm's brand if it's not managed properly. Yeah, I, I love the nuance you brought to that because that's the essence of these seven or eight remaining things on the list to me, where if you have the right lens on it, it's a perfectly good thing for marketing to be doing. But the way you're framed, I, I agree 100%, is, is it's bad. I mean, if someone comes to you, like you said, you should be sort of delicately pushing them away because your job as the marketer, marketing lead for the firm is not to build up the reputation of an individual to build up the collective expertise of the firm and its and its point of view and its reputation in the marketplace. Now, of course, that consists of people, and so you, you know, you're, at times you're raising their visibility as well, and that's and that to me is perfectly fine. Yeah, and that brings us full circle, I think, to number nineteen: send out okay. holiday cards. <laughs> and it is representative. There's nothing wrong with sending out holiday cards. Yeah. But how do you do it? Do you just create this holiday card and put the firm name on it and then run off a bunch of mailing labels at a mailing house and just zip it out? Or do you just set it up so people can come into a room and sign it as 
a team member. To me, those are wastes of time. But if a consultant wants to send out Christmas cards to his 20 top clients, then sit down, hand write a note in the Christmas card or a holiday card, whatever you're going to call it, and say, hey, I really enjoyed last year. I hope your wife's name and your kid's name and your dog and you know your annual trip to you know the Bahamas goes well and you have a great Christmas. And you actually connect with them personally and demonstrate that you understand who they are as a human being in a handwritten note. Do that. That is phenomenal because nobody's doing that. That would be a good way to send out holiday cards. And to me, that reinforces all of that other stuff about you should own that because it's relationship driven and it's building your reputation and trust with a client or potential client. So your point about, yes, everything on this list could be good to do, but it has to be done in the right way with the right ROI and desired outcome measures. I I honestly can't imagine a better place to stop this podcast having you brought it full circle. I will say this to any clients I have that are listening, I'm going to now give you a personal apology for not sending any holiday cards because now you made me feel like the biggest heel in the world for the things I should be doing that I will be doing. So I promise this, this is a promise I will make to people that I do business with that I, I really value and appreciate. I will do my best to send a personal note to them for holiday season next year. Because you're right. That's exactly what should be happening. Not, I look forward to getting my card, Jason. Oh, I wouldn't send one to you, but <laughs> 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 I'm just teasing. But uh, All right, no. I'll see you, buddy. All right, man. Thanks for your time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh, oh.